You're listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, here in Luke chapter 14, our subject is the subject of discipleship. What does it take to be a disciple of Christ? What is the proper attitude for us to have in uh, our ministry or in our following uh, of Jesus. Now, the lessons that Jesus teaches here are actually going to stem from a encounter that he had with a group of Pharisees and their friends in a meal. All of it centers around the setting of verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers of the Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So you know that this is an important meal uh, because Jesus is there with Uh, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So this isn't just simply a Pharisee's home, but this is a Pharisee who is one of the rulers of other Pharisees. So you have here an important man among important men in that culture. And so likely after the Sabbath morning services had concluded, they have this invitation-only meal that we'll learn was invitation-only later in verse 7. Uh, Jesus later will look around and notice that the upper crust of society is, is the only part of society that is represented, and he'll rebuke it. So you have all of these highly important people to the culture, the upper crust, invited to this home for this meal. And Jesus is there. This is the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house for a meal, and each time he'll make it into an awkward experience. Uh, The sinful woman forgiven, rebuking the Pharisees and the lawyers, and here Jesus will begin to teach a corrective word uh, to these Pharisees. Notice there in verse 1 that the Pharisees were watching Jesus carefully. There had been debate between these men and Jesus around and centered upon the Sabbath and the correct interpretation of what to do on the Sabbath. And so they're watching Jesus. Specifically, they're watching him because there was a man there who had dropsy, uh, this excess of fluid in the tissues of the body, perhaps even cancerous in its origin. And this man is there, the Lord knows it, and the Pharisees know it. Now, we know that they had more than likely planted the man in Jesus' midst, because it says in verse 3 that Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. No one had actually said anything, but Jesus responded to them. I think he took this as a plant that, that they had put this man in the midst, and certainly later in the text when we see that this was an invitation-only meal for those in the upper crust, this man with dropsy would not be, in that culture, considered the upper crust, 
Therefore, it seems as if he was simply put there as a test to see if Jesus would again persist in this line of thinking that it was okay to heal on the Sabbath day. Jesus asked the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. He took him and healed him and sent him away. In response to all of this, Jesus said to them in verse 5, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. I think one of the things that Jesus is showing us here about discipleship is that like Jesus, the disciple will see people. You see, the Pharisees who were not Jesus' disciples, what they saw was the Sabbath law and regulations and their over-interpretations, of course, of those Sabbath laws. But Jesus was not content to simply look at Sabbath regulations and laws, outward ceremony. No, Jesus saw the man that was hurting. He says, look, you have a son or an ox that falls into a well. You will immediately go in and pull him out. And so Jesus here is revealing his own heart, that his longing is to actually help people. It would be good for us to ask ourselves, do we have any traditions in our own lives? Do we have any regulations that keep us from helping people? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In other words, if God has put a spiritual gift within you, you want to use it. Why? He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And the thing that we have to note about each one of those gifts that Paul lists is that they're not for our benefit, but they're for the benefit of others. You will not use your gifts unless you enter into the life of discipleship, the life that sees people. Now, Jesus goes on, and it says, actually, in verse 6, it says that they could not reply to these things. And so there was just this sense of silence and awe of Jesus. Now, he told, verse 7, a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will both will come and say to him, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus here noticed something else about that meal, not just the man, but after he healed the man, he noticed How when these guests came in, they chose the seats of honor, the places of honor. There was a sort of visible pecking order that was received by everyone in that 
culture. It was a very, uh, it was a shame, honor kind of culture. So it was important to have a, a seat of honor inside of that meal. Likely, the seats that were closest to the host were indicative of the guest's importance. Uh, Many people think that the table would have actually been a U-shaped table or couch kind of set. And But whatever the setting was, there were specific seats that everyone knew were the seats of higher honor. And apparently, these men were doing everything that they could to choose the seats of honor. Jesus tells them to have an attitude, however, of humility. Don't wrestle for the seats of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. So, uh, you know, to admit, look, there might be people more distinguished than me. Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't think that Jesus is merely giving good advice to the person who wants to climb the social ladder. You know, just sort of saying, well, hey, you know, if you really want it to go well, seat seat yourself in the lower seat and allow publicly yourself to be invited into the seat of honor. This is sort of the idea of Proverbs 25, verse 6 and 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. So I don't think Jesus is giving them a tutorial on how to climb the social ladder. It seems to me that what Jesus is saying is there's an exaltation that comes from God. And a disciple like Jesus lowers himself or herself and says, I'm going to take the lowest position or the lower position. This, of course, emulates Jesus, as I mentioned. Jesus, who lowered himself, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He lowered himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul teaches us in Philippians chapter 2. But Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You have to desire the exaltation that comes from God in that last day. Now, that was Jesus speaking to the group. But in verse 12, he speaks to the host. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite, and Jesus now lists people who especially in that culture could not repay. Uh, some of these people in our culture might even actually have the means to be repay, uh, to repay you. They could be significant people. But in this culture, none of them would have the ability to repay. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus here points out a danger to the host. He says the danger is that you're going to extend yourself in hospitality and then the people that you extend yourself for, they will actually repay you for your hospitality. You want to watch out for that very dangerous thing. 
Instead, invite people or show hospitality to people who realistically will not be able to repay you. So what would this say to us about discipleship? Well, we would say that like Jesus, the disciple blesses those who cannot repay. Uh, This doesn't mean that you will not have a meal with friends or that you will not have a meal with uh, those who are your relatives or your neighbors or even wealthy neighbors. It doesn't mean that. But what it means is that the Christian perspective and dynamic is such that I want to extend myself for those who really cannot repay me at all. The normal flow of society is reciprocity. You know, I want to get something back in return for the things that I've done. But the disciple practices loving hospitality. You think about what Jesus did for us. He did not get a reciprocal relationship, and disciples should expect the same. We're not looking for a reciprocal thing. We're looking for repayment that comes, as Jesus said, at the resurrection of the just. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way. He said, nearly all the dividends of Christian consecration are postponed. We get them from God at the resurrection of the just. Now, when one of those who reclined at table, verse 15, with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He had this beautiful pronouncement, just overwhelmed. He says, look, it's a blessing to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus actually doesn't correct that concept. He doesn't disagree with the sentiment. But what he does correct is the idea of who would actually eat bread in the kingdom of God. Obviously, these men assumed that they would be present. But here's what Jesus said. He said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now, this would be the normal flow in that culture. You would be invited. You would affirm that you would be in attendance. And then when the time would come, a messenger would go. And this messenger went out and said, come for everything is now ready. But they, verse 18, these previously confirmed guests, but they, verse 18, all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife. And therefore, I cannot come. Notice the excuses that are given. We learn here from these excuses, I think, a little bit about why men often refuse the invitation of Jesus. The first man refused because he had a field that he needed to inspect. He wanted to observe his possession. And I think possessions often keep a man from Christ. The second man was concerned about his oxen. He needed to go examine them. That was his work. That was his profession. And so often a man's career will keep him from Christ. And finally, the third man, it was a relationship. It was a person. It was his wife 
that actually kept him from following after and and receiving the invitation. So the servant of the master came, verse 21, and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So we learn this beautiful thing from Jesus' parable. The master of the house says to the servant, go into the streets and lanes and highways and hedges and invite all kinds of people so that, verse 23, my house may be filled. I think if we're looking at discipleship, certainly the message that Jesus is communicating here is simply that the kingdom is going to be filled with people that you might not expect. A different people than would readily be expected. But I think a beautiful thing for us to come away with is that discipleship means that like Jesus, the disciple wants a full house. Notice that this, the master was not content with an empty house. No, he wanted the home to be filled for that banquet. He says that my house may be filled. That's the attitude and the heart of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites all to come. He wants people to come. And what we learn in this little parable is fascinating. We learn that this kingdom of Jesus's is a kingdom of grace. For in the parable, the man gave a banquet. There was nothing earned. Number two, we learn that it's a kingdom we are invited into. Uh, For many were invited into uh, the house and into this banquet. And number three, we learn that if we are outside of the kingdom, it's because we did not receive the invitation. These Pharisees, so many of them, would reject the invitation of the Lord. And so Luke records for us the final word of Jesus in that room or in that uh, banquet that the Pharisee was throwing when Jesus said, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, recorded really, in one sense, the story of Israel's, in large part, rejection of the gospel message and the Gentile reception of the gospel message and God's kingdom expanding into the Gentile world. Now, in verse 25, we move on from the house where this meal was had to a different group of people entirely. It says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them. So they had waited, apparently, for the meal to conclude. Jesus comes out. Great crowds are there. 
And Jesus now is going to speak to them about what it takes to be his disciple. In fact, three times in this little paragraph, Jesus will say of certain attributes, he cannot be my disciple. And the bar is going to be set very high by Jesus when it comes to what discipleship is. And Jesus, I think, is also going to tell us why the bar is set so high. And we'll get to that in a few verses. Let me just say that this high calling of discipleship that Jesus establishes, I think, is experiencing in our era a renaissance and I think should experience that renaissance. I believe that God wants to pour out his spirit mightily upon the younger generations that are rising up uh, within the church, the body of Christ. I believe that the Lord is drawing uh, many young people to know him, to love him, to serve him. And what young people need to know is that they need to know that Christianity, Christ, calls them to a mission, not a vacation, not rest, but to work, to labor. That in the midst of that labor, there is Sabbath rest for the mind and heart of the believer, but to understand that we are in a war. And I think this is an attractive message to young people. They need to know it. They need to receive it. Jesus sets the bar in the appropriate place. He says in verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, these are fear-filled words for any disciple to hear or to receive, for any believer to meditate upon. Jesus talks about a relationship with him that is so strong that our relationship with And he names these very beautiful relationships, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate those people, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, Jesus is not asking us to have a malicious attitude towards family or loved ones. What he is saying is that our strongest loyalty is always with him. These are relationships, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, own life. These are relationships that are good and high. But the reality is that God, that the Lord comes before all of that. That Jesus is the most beautiful, that nothing is fairer or finer or more excellent than he. Even these very fine and high relationships that God in his word honors and extols. But even still, the love that we're to have for Christ is to be so preeminent that Jesus would say, it's as if you hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Yes, even your own life. In other words, if there is ever a conflict, the disciple chooses Jesus, even over himself. So we understand that he is looking for our most radical and severe devotion. 
Now, in verse 27, he goes on and says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to bear your own cross? It means emptying life of everything that is merely selfish in motive. You know, they understood what the cross was, a death device. You were laying down your life. Now, sometimes people read these things from the Lord and they think, well, this sounds too severe. This is too extreme. But if we just had a little bit of perspective, how often we've expected and honored soldiers for behaving in this way towards their military, towards their nation, anticipating radical devotion. Shouldn't we want to have radical devotion for Jesus and his kingdom? So perhaps believers just don't understand the urgency at times or the intensity. When we frame it in a war context, it makes sense that this is what Jesus would expect of a disciple. Now, in verse 28, Jesus goes on and he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, well, the other is a great way off. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I should say that most commonly, the things that Jesus says here, he talks about, you know, a man building a tower. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost. You don't want to get halfway through a building project and run out of funds and have to abandon the project that you had started. Or a king going out to war, which of them would not calculate and figure out whether with a certain amount of troops could he with 10,000 withstand him who is coming with 20,000? Strategically speaking, the quality of his troops, the position that he's in, is he going to be able to stand against the 20,000? And if not, he'll send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. Most commonly, the way that this is taken is to say that what Jesus is saying is that here's the invitation into discipleship. You should count the cost before you say yes. I don't know that that's what Jesus is saying. That to me sounds as if Jesus would be saying, you know, now you know, count the cost, it's up to you. As if some could say, no, I don't want to be his disciple. But I think that the invitation of Jesus goes forth and it goes forth strongly. I think he says, be my disciple. I wonder with a minority if Jesus is saying something else. I wonder if what Jesus is saying here is is that he's giving us the reason why the call to discipleship is so severe. As if to say, don't you get it? I'm building something. Like a man building a tower, I am building something. And not only that, but I am fighting a huge battle, a huge war, like a king going out to fight. And what I'm looking for are building materials and soldiers that are up to the task. 
And so when I'm putting this stern thing upon you about what it means to be my disciple, so much so that I, if, when I say any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, for me to hold that out to you, now you know why I'm putting such a serious call out there. I'm setting the bar high because, well, what I'm doing is rather important. I'm looking for quality of people, quality of building materials, quality of warriors, quality of soldiers. So I don't know. I mean, perhaps it's what Jesus is saying. I suspect that he may be saying just that, that He's the one counting the cost. He's the one considering the battle and the war. So take it if you like. He says in verse 34, he says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be uh, restored? This would happen sometimes with salt that had come from the Dead Sea. It would actually lose its flavor, lose its pop. It would become saturated with other minerals. It would lose its saltiness. He says, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I think Jesus here is saying, don't lose your disciple edge. So again, for us learning about what it means to be Jesus' disciple, it's a stern task. It's a tall order. But Jesus is calling men and women into that life of discipleship. Let us say yes to him. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.